Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, the director of content here, joined as I often am by my colleague and collaborator, Ryan Donovan. Hey, Ryan. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. So we have a fun guest coming on today, Dean Tribble, who is the CEO over at Agoric. And he has a terrific history in the software industry, dating all the way back to Xerox Park, the year I was born, and uh, some time. Uh, oh, sorry, I didn't, didn't mean to rub it in like that. In places like Sun and Microsoft, and now working in the world of smart contracts, and here to talk a bit about EFI and you know, some of the things that have occupied developers' mind share over the last few years. So, Dean, without further ado, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yes, I didn't mean to out you uh, in terms of age. You just said you worked at Xerox Park in 1983. It happens to be the year I was born, so it's, it struck a chord. But tell the folks a little bit about yourself. How'd you get into the world of software and what brought you to you know, a, a place like Xerox Park? So I got into software because, you know, growing up as a kid, robots and spaceships and other science fiction, right? So right. I read about AI back in like sixth grade, um, you know, Terry Winograd's thesis, you know, and learned about software from that. And the idea that software could, you know, could enable a human to do more, enable a group to do more, just, you know, kept growing as this awesome, amazing idea in my head, right? You know, that mm. the technology could enable you to do more, but it's software that let you control all of that. And right. so I got into device mm. control at, in fourth. Uh, I got to see one of the first small talk systems when it was at uh, Aerospace Corporation in El Segundo. And that just caught fire in my head, this idea of being able to build software abstractions for things in the real world or things that, that we wanted to invent or things we wanted to build in object-oriented programming languages, in Smalltalk, that it wasn't the first, but it was very much the thing that carried it out to a much larger uh, uh, audience. And so I wanted to work at the place where that happened, which was Xerox Park. And so mm -hmm. when I went to college, mm -hmm. I chose my college based on, could I go to Park? <laughs> <laughs> Right, and so, right. you know, I, I, I didn't end up at Park because I went to Stanford. I ended up at Stanford because I wanted to go to Park. <laughs> gotcha. For folks who are listening who don't know, just quickly, what is what is small talk and what was it about that that excited yeah. you? I know you said before we hopped on the call, you're a language lover. What, what right. was small talk and what, what got you excited about so that? So small talk was the second, but the well-known object-oriented programming language like, you know, Java, C-sharp. Um, JavaScript and so forth, it really broke new ground on enabling this, this soft scripty ability to build large scale object systems in a programming language that was all about these objects. And it was where mice and windows um, and the whole idea of multiple windows on your desktop was really, right. a lot of that was, was implemented and popularized and where a lot of the window system ideas at uh, Apple and later at Microsoft right. came from. Yes, I, I know this is maybe a cruel way to frame it, but unfortunately, it's the way I understand the history. You know, my my biggest association with Xerox Park is Steve Jobs. You know, great artists don't just copy and create; they also steal. He went there in '79, saw all these great ideas for, like you said, a GUI with a mouse and a Windows and folders. Went ahead and took those and and you know popularized them through Apple in a way that was obviously a big deal for that company. That's right. You know, to be fair to the record, he paid a lot of Apple stock 
to Xerox for that privilege. This was not okay. actually him stealing. Mm-hmm. That's how it gets characterized. Gotcha. But licensed. in fact, there was a real deal there. And Xerox was, was in fact more than compensated for the time that was put in on that. They clearly didn't get all the upside of that opportunity, but right. they weren't going to get that anyway. So you know, they, were, <laughs> they were pretty happy with that outcome. And, and that drove a lot of appetite for, for example, laser printers that also were invented at Park. And right. so, you know, so they were happy. Okay. Cool. So take us forward a little bit. After Xerox Park, you worked at Sun, and then you worked at Microsoft, and you mentioned you found yourself working on an early smart contract pre-Bitcoin and crypto. What was an early smart contract, and why were you working on something like that? So the, the important thing, smart contracts are, you know, they long predate blockchain. You know, people think of it as, oh, it's software running on Ethereum. No, no, that's not what a smart contract was coined as. That's not what the idea was. I worked on the first production smart contract in 1989. It was the brainchild of Phil Salen. It wasn't called smart contracts at the time until Nick Zabo came along and we had a larger community at Xanadu, which is where Hypertext was invented, Amex, which is where this smart contract was, and various others in this, you know, cypherpunk era and and crowd of folks that were doing distributed systems pre-internet, looking at lots of internet technology, how do you secure it, all this sort of thing. And a smart contract in that in in our you know terminology, if you will is software that's enforcing the terms of a contract-like relationship between third parties, right? And so very, very careful there, nothing to do with blockchain. It's enabled Mm -hmm. by having people connected Mm -hmm. by network. So you couldn't do this before at least the ARPANET and there you weren't allowed to do business. So it really required the evolution to, to the internet. But that's, you know, lots of smart contract businesses existed before blockchain. So Uber, well, these weren't before blockchain, but Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, PayPal, Venmo, eBay, right? right? eBay is software that's sitting in the middle enabling a buyer and seller to end up meeting, or rather a seller and a bunch of buyers to bid. And that whole interaction, which is contract-like behavior between those parties that ends up with one of them winning it and having to pay and shipping charges and all that sort of stuff is mostly automated by software. And that's trillion dollar market cap before Ethereum ever came along. That was a huge new way of doing businesses that was a non-trivial contributor to the boom of the internet and the growth of the internet is this this model of an intermediary enabling third parties to do business with each other. Yeah, that makes sense. The crucial distinction maybe being that, you know, in a system like an eBay or, you know, an online retailer or bank, the parties involved in the transaction can't necessarily see the ledger or know that it's immutable in some, you know, supposedly trustless fashion. It's happening behind the the sort of black box of a private company running software. Exactly. So it's a trusted intermediary, which right. doesn't necessarily trusted. mean it was trustworthy. <laughs> right. It's interesting to describe those as smart contracts, like any sort of enforcement of business terms via software, if I understand what you're saying correctly. Approximately, yeah. That's sort of the, uh, the 90s web explosion is just all these businesses that were enforcing terms and and transactions between two parties. Exactly. And there were a few like, you know, if I'm just running a website to sell you stuff, then it's not third party relationships. So there were some things that wouldn't fall into the the smart contract designation, but it is a useful characterization because then you can look at a business and even now you can look at something that's going to move on to a blockchain or that you're going to launch and, and does it have the characteristics where you're enabling third parties to cooperate with each other instead of you're just trying to do business and how you approach the business, how you approach revenue, how you approach the incentives for people to participate is you know, different if it's this kind of smart contract business rather than if it's you're just rolling out a new online business. 
So you mentioned you're, you're a lover of distributed systems. Um, I want to talk about how you made your way you know, into this sort of you know, modern era of crypto, Web3, blockchain, smart contract stuff. In mm-hmm. fact, I, I probably would want to hear uh, which one of those terms you associate yourself with and which you don't. But before <laughs> we get to that turn of the wheel, uh, did you work on distributed systems in your time at Sun or Microsoft and anything there you want to touch on? I'm sure people would love to hear about what in your career you found most interesting while doing that at oh, yeah. big tech companies like that. Well, to start with, I worked on distributed systems after the small talk group at Bark. I worked on large scale, massive, concurrent programming languages and large scale distributed programming languages. And so how do you use a network where you can write programs that coordinate multiple machines across a network? Just to be clear, I was a you know college student, so I was an intern at Park. I was not one of the, I was not a principal researcher or anything like that. Right? But we had lots of papers about this stuff about how how to do that in programming language that could express activity across multiple machines. And so that a lot of what I have done since then is still building on that work and leveraging that work. So that had high bandwidth asynchronous messaging between machines. That was the basis where Mark Miller and I, one of the, someone that I've you know, done lots of engineering work on at a variety of different places, including here at Agoric, um, you know, Mark Miller and I met in this project at Xerox Park, and out of that work was the um, asynchronous coordination and asynchronous messaging of promises, which evolved into like promises in JavaScript and Rust and C Sharp. And that has a direct descent from the work we did at Xerox Park on large-scale distributed systems and messaging. And so there's sort of this theme all the way through. We did the first version of that in concurrent logic programming languages in Xerox Park. In Xanadu, we then did it for doing the high-performance messaging from the client to server for hypertext things before the web, and then built the same sort of thing in Java that got used in the brokerage information system we built for Schwab, went to Microsoft. First at Microsoft, they acquired a company that had a um, secure email system to integrate into a reboot of Exchange. And that was interesting and it got lots of production stuff out there. But then I moved to the Midori project, which was a asynchronous messaging between secure encapsulated components in a brand new operating system to run high performance cloud-based systems and mobile systems and so forth. And it was just this awesome, amazing technology project that got shut down because it wasn't Windows, but a lot of the technology has leaked out into C-sharp with async await, has leaked out into um, some of the Rust technology, has, has you know, been used by, well, you know, people like Agoric, like other teams, um, uh, Pulumi and, and et cetera, out there that are building on some of the ideas that we developed at Microsoft, for, again, continuing this growth of asynchronous messaging between machines to do distributed system coordination. It's interesting you talk about a lot of these old problems as like uh, this is going on with like uh, Kafka views. This is what's going on with a lot of the sort of container orchestration. Um, and it seems like these problems are just getting sort of refined and refined and better and better solutions for them. Yep. You know, and some of better is faster and stronger. Some of better is more understandable by humans. Yeah, that, that's fair. I talked to some folks who um, have a group called Papers We Love who do little presentations to explain older papers or um, <laughs> newer papers. And one of their favorite presentations was this guy who does a presentation where he dresses up in, you know, 80s outfit and he goes through all the problems of the 80s. <laughs> and it's the same ones we're going through now. Wow. Okay. I need that link. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's a classic. 
All right, everybody. Today's episode is a very special sponsor, yours truly, Stack Overflow. Now, we all know the frustration of searching for answers on internal wikis that have gone stale or trying to find that one email or chat thread from months ago with the information you need to get unblocked now. Well, there is a better way. Stack Overflow for Teams is a knowledge base that has all the features you already know from stackoverflow.com, but reimagined for your organization so you and your teammates can collaborate, quickly find solutions, and just be more productive. It's like a private Stack Overflow for your organization's internal knowledge and documentation. And it's used by companies like Microsoft, Bloomberg, Dropbox, many more. You can always try it out. The first 50 seats are free at s.tk slash teams pod and if 50 seats won't cut it head on over to stackoverflow.co slash teams and use the promo code teams win you'll get a 30 percent discount on your first year courtesy of the stack overflow podcast all right spiel over let's get on with the show Tell us a little bit about what you're working on these days, you know, how you found yourself focused in that area. Yeah, maybe, you know, what it is you're doing day to day. So there's this thread I said of asynchronous messaging and promises um, and programming languages and operating systems to make that easier. So instead of programming individual machines and then figuring out how to coordinate with these other systems, we have the communication model sort of built in. And then you're communicating with processes in one machine versus over a network to another machine is approximately the same. From a programmer's point of view, you write it the same way. I send a message to deposit money into an account. I don't care whether the account is local or it's across the network or across the internet. My you know, two lines of JavaScript looks exactly the same. That had been a theme starting from you know, even in the world of, of small talk. And there were numerous, how do you do distributed object messaging or distributed message passing or distributed coordination from Corba and IAOP to gRPC and 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 Captain Proto and all the this range of things and so we've been driving the asynchronous messaging part of the world where synchronous messaging is machine A sends a message to machine B waits for an answer and then continues on to send a message to machine C or another message to B asynchronous messaging is machine A sends a message to machine B and then immediately sends a second message and a third message and a fourth message and you might stream out a whole bunch of messages and have the answers stream back and how do you orchestrate that sort of stuff. So there's that theme throughout research, technology development, deployment, technology stacks for products that we've you know shipped into the market and so forth. The other theme is that smart contract one, which started at, at Amex with you know smart contract to do you know consulting contracts. But out of that, then we did a later project at Sun Microsystems. The company was called Agorix, which is not the same as the company I'm working on, but has a lot of the same roots, obviously. And it was to do resource management in the massive networks that Sun was participating in and, and researching in the early days of the internet. So this is 94, 95, 96. And it was the observation that there's so much bandwidth, there's so much memory that you needed mechanisms like market mechanisms to decide where to allocate it. There was lots and lots of bandwidth, but not enough for a company of 120,000 people to all do video conferences. Where do you dedicate your bandwidth? Where do you put compute resources and so forth? And so we had a smart contract infrastructure, again, pre-blockchain. It was all 
so, you know, machines using secure protocols to communicate with each other about their respective positions and rights and controls. So the machine that was the gatekeeper for the network, you had to engage in a remote object protocol to bid for bandwidth out over onto the internet, and you would bid for it. A payment would happen from the bank machine um, and using secure protocols, and then you would get access to a high bandwidth stream that you could send messages out for example. And so these were smart contract businesses all dynamically cooperating without human intervention across a network using these distributed secure messaging protocols. And so the cool thing about what I'm doing right now is it pulls, you know, that and other security things that I've worked on together with this distributed object stuff. So smart contracts and distributed asynchronous messaging and security approaches all together into one solution set, one problem set that, oh, by the way, is open source, right? And so the combination of lots of cool technology pulled together and open source has just been really, really exciting. So we're building this technology stack, rebuilding some of it, things we've done elsewhere, but it's targeted for both Web2. So Endo is just, you know, node replacement that has async messaging and secure encapsulation of random third-party code from arbitrary people where you can run unsafe, untrusted code in a box and cooperate with it without being vulnerable to it. Mm. And so we do that for Web2, and the same infrastructure lets us do smart contracts in JavaScript for Web3, uh, right. for, you know, on blockchain, on in the interchain ecosystem. So I think it's very interesting that you are allowing folks to build smart contracts with JavaScript. Obviously, that opens this up to a huge pool of developers, you know, who may not have learned, uh, you know, Solidity right. or you know, some other sort of blockchain specific language. Have you seen a dip in, you know, sort of the interest or the applicants uh, trying to come into this world post the most recent sort of crypto winter? Or do you feel like, you know, the true believers or the, you know, sort of amount of people who see the long-term value in this area has stayed the same? I feel like from my perspective, there was a big burst of hiring into this ecosystem throughout 2020, 2021. And that's kind of fallen off a cliff post the Three Arrows FTX debacle, which left, you know, a sizable crater in the industry and and, and a bit of loss of trust as well, I think. Right. So I see a mix of things, and the Electric Capital Report is certainly quite interesting in this regard. The number of developers in the space is still vastly more than there was, you know, a year ago, two years ago, uh, whatever. So there was continued growth of active developers in the space in the last year in spite of the downturn. Forget the, I mean, you know, lack of trust absolutely had a big impact. Drop in the token prices overall had had a non-trivial impact. And you still see 7% year-over-year growth in the number of developers in the space. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a couple reasons why we're doing, we refer to as hardened JavaScript, and that's a standards track additions to be able to enable JavaScript to run where I can download th- arbitrary third-party JavaScript and run it safely inside of a container cooperating with it without being vulnerable to it, you know, getting out to my file system or, or the network when it should or whatever. And that's critical for doing smart contracts. Um, so there are multiple reasons we chose JavaScript. One of them is it's actually more securable than a lot of the other languages. And we can talk about, you know, why that is. You know, it has the object-oriented ability to do compositions. So you can do better composition and better library construction in JavaScript. But the other is simply you got to meet developers where they're at, right? And so we want to see a world where millions of developers can, be, can build applications used by billions of users. And to get to billions of users, to get to 
a lot of, of everyday applications using decentralized technology underneath. And we should talk a little bit about why that's actually valuable and important and what's good about this for people. But to get that to happen, you've got to enable a lot more developers to be able to build this stuff. And that means meeting them where they're at. That doesn't mean making the perfect next language that you know at least a thousand people will get excited about. You've got to have something that they already are good at and make that work. And that's been our focus. And that's why our energy has been focused around JavaScript. And that's why we're excited you know, about even having other chains adopt some of this technology so that they enable more developers is going to be a big win for the overall Web3 decentralized ecosystem. So you wanted to get into the, uh, the why this is important, why solutions like the decentralized consensus-based ledgers like blockchains and others, why those are an interesting and valuable technology for folks to consider. Yeah, so you asked about what got me into it. When I finally understood that, that got me excited about it. You know, so smart contracts existed pre-blockchain and were successful, right? Trillion dollar market cap before 2015. The gold standard of blockchains is multiple machines in multiple jurisdictions administrated by independent parties cooperating to achieve state information. Dean has, you know, $100 in his bank account choices. Dean made a bid and then withdrew it, but the auction closed at the same time. Did Dean get his money back or did he win the auction, right? You can't have it both ways. There's only $100. Is it back in my account or do I now own a piece of art, right? And so choices and the outcome of computation, right, where that operation was the result of computation. So Bitcoin was the first blockchain that did this. The first thing that had, I mean, it is a smart contract because it's software that's orchestrating certain kinds of relationships between third parties, but it is operated on multiple different machines. And this problem of, well, making choices, I mean, we do that all the time in software, but that's easy to do on one machine, relatively speaking. You make a choice, and, you know, the outcome happens, you write it out, and everyone believes you. The problem is that one machine is, is relatively vulnerable, can be compromised, can be buggy, um, can be backdoored, you know, can be, can be denied service, all those kinds of things. Getting that to come out of a collection of machines operated by independent parties, that's hard. And that's where this stuff that where people were working on in the 60s, like Paxos, and this turned into Raft and Kafka and all these kinds of th technologies for coming to decisions in a decentralized fashion. And so blockchain, that core technology that all the froth, just like you had when the internet was rolling out, you had all this froth and crap going on that would come and go and there'd be up, up cycles and down cycles. Same thing happening in blockchain, but the big value is that advancement of that consensus infrastructure and the advancement of the zero-knowledge infrastructure, but that consensus infrastructure is the heart of getting multiple independent machines efficiently come to a robust consensus of, in my example, did Dean win the auction or not? <laughs> and that executes code with a level of integrity that does not exist anywhere else. Right, people talked about you know replicated execution in in individual machines or replicated databases, but I can tell you the number of times I had you know RAID drives where they both failed together, or you know Enron had replicated machines for their auction engine for electricity, and people slipped in even you know transactions at the close of the day because they had the trusted backdoor. So there's lots of reasons to do decentralized stuff. Excellent. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think what you say is is definitely true. It was, you know, kind of a watershed moment, like you point out, to do this in a way that brought it outside of that trusted first party. And I, I think in some ways that is what excited so many developers was this idea of getting to contribute to building something that was more open, more diffuse, and where their input into the ecosystem uh, would be a lot more visible. You know, they wouldn't be working on a product inside of some giant corporation. <laughs> we have just a few minutes left. I think one of the things I'm interested in is, you know, like, yeah, what you're excited about on working on over the next year um, and, you know, what you think, uh, you know, people in the ecosystem might be aligning around in this sort of, you know, current period of re-entrenchment. Mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. it was mentioned in the Electric Capital Report that a lot of folks are figuring out ways to get rust into the ecosystem, which is always <laughs> the most loved language in Stack Overflow's developer survey. But I yeah, I'm curious to hear what you're thinking about for 2023, and then we can take it to the outro. Sure. So... I find Rust very interesting as well, and we'll eventually integrate it in the Agoric blockchain, which is, you know, Agoric is designed for writing smart contracts in hardened JavaScript. Regardless of the success of Rust, there will be millions of developers that will want to and be able to do JavaScript. And so I'm eager for Rust to succeed broadly, and uh, and I am not afraid from a competitive point of view because what we need is to reach all those other developers, and that's sort of sort of our mission. But, you know, we have rolled out our platform with particular smart contracts, market institutions to lay the foundation for an economy. But it has not yet been opened up for arbitrary people to contribute contracts. We're moving to releasing the sort of the final pillar that we're building for the economy of of the stable token IST. Um, And then that's, you know, and, and it's off to the community to decide how that, you know, grows, how that gets deployed and how that grows from there. But then we move to... Third parties have been building applications in JavaScript on our platform, and they'll start to roll out. So they'll start to roll out later this year. We're re- I'm really excited about that. You know, you build a developer platform, and you know nothing until somebody else has developed stuff. And we've seen what they've built, and so we're excited about what they've built. We've gotten feedback and you know learnings from what they built, so we've got improvements to make sort of on, a, on an iterative basis going forward. But I'm just so excited to finally get to that point where we start to look at adoption metrics of our platform because we can now reach developers and give them a place to you know, build in JavaScript and deploy it and have a sort of successfully deployed application. So I'm really excited about that. Cool. Do you have a specific project that you're most excited or that is the sort of blew your mind when you saw it implemented? Oh, interesting. <laughs> there are a couple at di- yeah, different levels. The, the hierarchical NFT stuff that Cryo built on the system, you know, all these people excited about NFTs. And I know there's a lot of negativity around the speculative bubble, but people have spent more money and there's been more real revenue on businesses that use it where it's not, you know, a million bucks an NFT or whatever crazy things going on. It's tickets and fan engagement and music engagement and some of these things that really are changing the game for, for the creator economy. But they're all very, very simple, right? We're just at the beginnings of what you'll be able to do engagement-wise when you can have, you know, a world of assets that third parties can extend, right? As soon as you have third parties able to extend your engagement with a band or a sports team or whatever, and there's money involved, you need blockchain because otherwise you've got bad incentives. And that's one of the big things that blockchain will open up across a broad range of human endeavor. And so I'm very excited about what's happened there. And what, so what Cryo built is instead of just here, you own this thing or you don't own this thing, it's hierarchical entities. So their example of gaming where, you know, I've got a character 
which is an NFT. It's a transferable asset between games or, you know, I can build up, you know, sort of gaming capital with respect to it or, or what have you. But my gear are also NFTs. And so the collection of those is an NFT of a character that has a particular set of gear. So instead of it being, oh, I'm just going to have an auction for randomly generated characters and hope I can get one I like. It's like, no, no. Now I can engage and build up the portfolio of a character that I like for whatever set of gaming or social engagement or have you, I'm going to, I'm going to have, you know, and you might do it that way. You might do it of here's my character for all the concerts and I've got, you know, the achievement badges on my chest. They're also hierarchical entities. So that's, that was interesting to see. I mean, it, it helped explain where would this world of, of assets go when it wasn't just about trading of value, but it was really about engagement in different ways and groups. And that's a big, you know, that's a big, exciting sort of future element in Web3 world. Right. That makes sense to me. I've always felt like, yeah, you could see the metaverse best in video games and other areas where people clearly invested many, many hours of their lives and, you know, a lot of their money into getting the coolest skins or avatars or things like that. How we make that um, so that you can share those avatars across multiple platforms or so that, you know, they can move in sort of like a trustless or decentralized way, you know, maybe we'll get there eventually. All right, everybody. At this time in the show, we always like to shout out someone from the Stack Overflow community who came on and helped to spread a little knowledge, save a question from the dustbin of history. Thanks to JLG awarded a lifeboat 23 hours ago, how to convert a string to JSON in JavaScript. doesn't mention hardened JavaScript here, but maybe it's also possible. Appreciate you coming on, posting up an answer, saving this question getting a lifeboat batch. You've helped over around 20,000 people have viewed this question. So appreciate it. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. If you like the podcast and you want to chat, email us with questions or suggestions. It's just podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, best thing you could do is leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find it at stackoverflow.blog. And if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at rthordonovan. I'm Dean Tribble. I am CEO of Agoric. That's at agoric.com. You can find information about us there or, you know, GitHub. We have vast amounts of open source code. And you can find me at uh, Dean Tribble on Twitter or Dean Tribble on Telegram. Awesome. All right, everybody. As always, thanks for listening. And we will talk to you soon.